I'm, uh, I'm very excited that we as a church have decided to follow the lectionary. And uh, the lectionary, you remember I showed you this uh, This slide here, uh, the lectionary is a guide that allows you to read through the entire Bible in three years. And every Sunday, there's a portion of scripture from that week's readings that sort of brings everything together. And uh, you're welcome to aim your cameras at that and you can uh, see what uh, the scriptures are for the weeks to come and the, the, the months to come. And uh, we are very happy that we can do that. And uh, there we go. Okay. So this is actually forcing me as a preacher and others that are going to be preaching to step away from those themes and topics that are our favorites. And you probably know some of my favorite topics in the Bible. But it forces us to explore and to be touched by the Word of God in deeper ways uh, in areas that we may skip over. So every week has been a challenge to, because there's, as you recognize, if we go to this link, there is usually a number of scriptures. And uh, there is the first reading, then the second reading, and an alternate third reading, a first reading a psalm, and a gospel. So there's about five or six different passages. And the idea is that in those six passages, five, six passages, there's usually a theme. And the theme doesn't always jump out at you. So this week has been a real struggle for me to find the theme as to what God is speaking to us as a church. And of course, everybody who's reading this will probably land on a different theme depending on where they're at. But there's a common theme that we can all land on. And uh, so the passage that I picked out of the passages uh, that are there, let me see if I can show you the passages. Uh, so these are the passages for today. The first reading in the psalm, the alternate first reading in the psalm, the second reading, this is for every Sunday. But there's also, if you go to that link and you scroll down to daily lectionary readings, some of you are now doing that. If you click on go to day's, today's reading, some of you are doing that individually and some of you are doing that with the small group that you're in. And uh, we're doing that as a leadership on the Saturday mornings. I mentioned this a couple of times. We meet every Saturday morning to pray uh, as a leadership team and the Lord speaks to us in those times. So yesterday we were looking at this passage here uh, Psalm 99 Exodus and usually we land on one of them or I, when I'm preparing it I land on one and I bring that and we pray into that. So for today my heart went to Exodus chapter 33 but I need to sort of prepare the ground to understand what's going on in chapter 33 of Exodus. Exodus is the story of God's deliverance of a people out of bondage to something. 
Now, why is God doing that? If we don't understand the big picture, none of this makes sense. And today, there's so much in the news about that piece of land to the east of the Mediterranean, to the west of the Jordan River, south of Lebanon, north of Sinai. That piece of land that's called Israel, Palestine, Gaza, the West Bank, Jerusalem, is in the midst of all of that, and that's known as, in the Bible, the city of the great king. It started off with God having created humanity, and humanity walking away from God by our forefather, Adam and Eve, eating from the tree that God told them not to eat. I mean, we all know this story to some degree. They sinned. And because they sinned, all of humanity has inherited that sinful nature. So God steps in. He used to walk with Adam. He used to spend time in Adam's presence. So Adam was familiar with the voice of God. I don't know how God appeared to him before the fall and after the fall. And the fall is that we call the fall when Adam sinned, when he ate of the forbidden fruit of the tree. Satan tempted Eve. Eve took of it. She gave it to Adam. Adam took of it, and they became sinful. But God used to appear to Adam. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a physical form. But he takes on, in the Bible talks about him, and there's a special word in theology of how God has the ability to take on human form-like descriptions. So God can have a face. God can have a hand. God can have a hand that carves into the rock the commandments. God can have a hand that can write on the wall that you have been judged. Those things. And he also has the ability, and he has done this, and it's confusing to us sometimes because he appears in the form of an angel. An angel is a spirit without body. But he appears to somebody. So all of these different things have been going on through history. So after Adam fell, all of humanity went sideways. There was nobody, hardly anybody that was righteous. Everybody was sinful. So he found one man, Noah. And he talks to Noah and he says to Noah, Noah, I'm going to reset. All, the humani all of humanity has gone berserk. I'm going to reset. Out of your family, out of all the families of the earth, your family, you, your wife, your sons, their wives, eight people, I'm going to save you and I'm going to restart this whole thing. Because I want to be able to live with humans. I don't want to just have created humans and left them on a planet. I want to dwell among them. I want to dwell within them. I want to make them into a living temple. So far so good. So he resets. Noah starts a new family on the earth. 
the ark lands in Ararat. Ararat means the curse has been lifted. Wow, that's amazing. So now the family comes out, eight of them, Ararat's foothills, and Noah prepares an altar. He sacrifices. He creates a vineyard. He gets wine. He gets drunk. He curses his son and his grandson for having seen him naked. What? This amazing stories. But as the thing continues, again, humanity goes sideways. Everything in a human heart is predisposed to sin. Like when you look at the news today, there's so much evil. But that's others. But let's not look at others. Let's look at ourselves. There are things inside of us that we contend with in terms of attitudes against other people. Even as good as we are. We have things inside of us, each of us, that we feel about others. Even others that we love. Let alone others that we hate. Enemies. We have garbage inside of us that surfaces sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we're definitely honest before God. We can't lie to God. He sees it all. And he says, all of you are sinners. So he looked around and he found that all of them were now forming these idols. He found one man again. And this man's name is Abraham. Abram. His parents called him Abram. And he comes to Abram and he says, Abram, I'm going to make you a great family. Abraham was old, his wife was old, they had no kids, she could not conceive. But somehow he promised him a son. And that this son's children would number more than the sand on the sea. Wow, there's a lot of sand in the sea. But Abraham has no children. So what's his dream? And he tells him that I'm going to give you the land that's now in question in the Middle East. That strip. I'm going to give that to you and to your descendants. So maybe it helps us to understand these things, to understand what this fight and this war is about. But Abraham had no kids. And there was a famine, so he ends up in Egypt. They end up being picked up, recognized by the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. As Abraham was a rich man, he had a lot of cattle, a lot of sheep, So when he came into Egypt, word got around. And his wife, Sarah, even though she was old, she was beautiful. Now, she wasn't just his wife. She was his stepsister. So he lies to Pharaoh. Pharaoh figures, okay, she's a free woman. She's not married to anyone. I'm going to take her as part of my harem, part of my wives. But that's not true. She is married to Abraham. So somehow that brings a curse on the house of Pharaoh. When he brought her in, he had given her a girl to be her maid. It wasn't like a slave girl, even though sometimes in the Bible translations we read it as slave girl. Think of what you would think of in medieval times when a king or a noble person had their daughter have maids. They weren't the slaves. The maids, servants were daughters of nobility. As a matter of fact, in some of the Hebrew or or Jewish writings, you read that Hagar, Sarah's helper, was Pharaoh's daughter. 
from one of his concubines. In other words, she was nobility. And that's what the Hebrew word that describes her really means, but we lose it in the translation. We think of her as a slave girl, but she isn't. She's nobility. She was given as a daughter of Pharaoh to be his new wife's assistant, to take care of her, to help her feel at home. Anyway, when they find out that she was married to Abraham, he kicks them out of Egypt. And Hagar, who recognizes this God that they worship, is faithful to have kept Sarah from having gone to bed with Pharaoh, decides that she's going to go with them. This is documented in the uh, teachings of the Hebrew sages. We don't read this in the Bible. But we read it in the history of some of the writings of the Jews. It's interesting that Hagar is now married to Pharaoh's daughter. When Sarah says to him, go sleep with her, marry her, have a son with her. And he has Ishmael. His firstborn is Ishmael. And in the Torah, and the laws of Moses, the firstborn has double portion. Not Isaac. Ishmael. Isaac has a different story. So when we begin to look at the conflict of the Middle East, we have to look at it from the biblical roots of what's going on. This land is promised to both of their fathers, Abraham, Ishmael's and Isaac's. And this is not a political uh, discussion. This is a spiritual historical discussion of how God created this family and what he has done. Now they don't know how to live together. Different conversation. They fought. Abraham kicks her out. Ishmael goes with her. They leave. And they're now continuing. And as Abraham gets old, first Sarah dies. They bury her. And now Abraham dies. And who buries him? You read this in the scripture in the Bible. Both Ishmael and Isaac come together and they bury their father. In the land God had promised him. But somehow their descendants don't know how to live together. Because each of them feels that they have the right. And have you seen family squabbles over inheritance and the will and how to read the will? But this is exactly that, unfortunately. But because it's that family that God chose Abraham, it has the enemy's eyes are on it. Because he doesn't want God to fulfill his plans through this family. And as a matter of fact, today there's people in Israel that say, oh, I wish we were not the chosen people. Our life would have been so much easier. They were chosen for a purpose. They were chosen as a family to become a nation. And God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, I have made you, I have blessed you to make you a blessing for all nations. And then later he expands that and he shows that this blessing is to be a kingdom of priests. If you are a kingdom of priests, in other words, if you are a priest, are you a priest for yourself or for somebody else? You are a priest for all nations. So Israel was in the mind of God is a nation that has been placed uniquely to live according to a certain standard so that it would be the go-between, the priest between God and humanity. It failed. 
And God, when, he, when they ended up in Egypt, God came in and he said, these are my people. They're now slaves. I brought them out of, slave, out of the famine into Egypt when Joseph, Abraham's grand, great-grandson, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Joseph ended up in Egypt because his brothers hated him. So you see this conflict of this family rivalry is deep because all of humanity is broken. It's not unique to Israel. It's not unique to Palestinians. It's a common thread in all of humanity. As a matter of fact, Armenians today are under heavy burden. And guess what? I was in a prayer meeting on Friday night and they were telling me the same thing. In the streets of Armenia, you hear some Armenians saying, oh, I wish we were never Christians because this headache would never have landed on us. If we had been like the rest of the people around us, we would have been okay. They wouldn't have hated us. This brokenness is deep. When we walk with God, there's a function and a purpose. So here they are. I hope you've been tracking with the history so far. They are now slaves in Egypt because the Pharaoh forgot that Joseph was his, the, 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 this is 400 years later, they forgot who Joseph was and what he did, but all they see now is this family that's growing and multiplying and it's becoming a threat. And there's a lot of other spiritual dynamics that the enemy is walking and doing behind the scenes. So Pharaoh now begins to squeeze them and God hears their cry and he comes to save them and he brings them out. He brings them out and now they're out of Egypt. You know, the whole Passover, the blood of the lamb, on the doorposts, all of that. They're out of Egypt and now God takes Moses up on the mountain, carves with his hand two tablets with the Ten Commandments to tell Moses and Israel what their new life is going to look like. How they're going to be a people that's different. When he took them out of Egypt, he told Moses to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go so that they could worship me in the land I'm going to take them so that I will dwell with them and among them. This is very important. Let me say it again. He took them out of Egypt to take them to the land that he promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob so that he may dwell among them so that they would be a nation, a royalty of priests. That's the goal. So he's talking to Moses up on the mountain. He's giving him this new constitution. The constitution simply means this is how you will live. This is the driving force of your existence. But what do the people do? God hears sounds down below. And Moses begins to hear sounds down below. And he tells them to go down because these people have done something unthinkable. They have created themselves an idol. I'm the God that took them out of Egypt. There should be no other God that they have higher than me. But they have now prostituted themselves in front of a man-made idol. And they say that this is the God that has taken us out of Egypt. God is heartbroken. 
the people that are supposed to represent him to the rest of the nations by being different, by being different, how? In behavior, in mindset, in disposition. And he's going to be the one that lives among them because the living among them is what's going to give them their identity to be different. He is so holy that he cannot live with this. Not that he can't live with it, he can't accept it. He is so holy that if he comes into contact with the people that have broken the rule, broken the relationship, broken the covenant, his holiness would crush them, would destroy them. So for their sake, he says, I can't continue with you. So in, in chapter 33, God speaks to Moses and he says, go, go, leave this place. You and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. It's not his people anymore. They've broken the covenant. They've cheated on him. They went with a prostitute. He's heartbroken. And go to the land of which I swore. He's still going to let them continue in the covenant. But he just can't be with them. The land I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob saying to your descendants I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey but I will not go up among you or I would consume you on the way. My holiness will not be able to tolerate your brokenness. My holiness will crush you. You're not fit to have me with you, among you. For you are a stiff-necked people. Moses said to the Lord, there's a whole discussion that goes on in between. Uh, it tells us actually how it used to be. Now Moses used to take up the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. This is something that routinely Moses would do. And he would just go prepare a place outside the people. And it was in that place that he was meeting with God. It wasn't in the midst of the people, it was outside the camp. The camp was a huge camp. It was hundreds of thousands, millions of people in different tents, in different parts, and they were all situated together there. And Moses would leave all of that, set up a small tent outside that perimeter, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out of the tent uh, to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses would went out to the tent, all the people would rise and stand. They saw that something was happening. God was going to encounter humanity. God was going to now come into contact. As a matter of fact, let's continue. All the people would rise and stand, each of them at the entrance of their tents and watch until Moses had gone into the tent. 
when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise and bow down, all of them at the entrance of their tents. Thus Moses used to speak, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. God had no face. He's a spirit. But somehow he is trying to communicate to us the understanding of how intimate the relationship between God and Moses was. They were buddies. There was nothing hidden between them. You know, when we talk face to face, you notice all my expressions. The problem with text messaging is you don't understand the emotion behind what the message says. And sometimes we get into arguments because of something that was said, maybe a grammar mistake or a comma. This isn't that. This is face to face. He can see, feel, understand the heart. Sometimes when you're face to face, you don't even need to speak. You can just see it. You know, Ari's running around and sometimes he looks at mom or dad to get an approval. No words are exchanged, but he knows. We know the same face to face. We get it. Then he would return to the camp, but his young assistant Joshua, son of Nun, would remain. Anyway, so now God is angry. He says, I can't go among you. You go. I will send an angel. So now Moses is beginning to pick up the conversation here, and he says to God, See, you have said to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. Who's this angel? Yet you have said, I know you by name. So Moses is now doing an amazing job as some have argued that he's an amazing lawyer. He's bringing a case and he's trying to open things up with God. God just finished saying, take this people that you brought out, but they're not Moses' people. Earlier he called them my people. You shall be my people and I shall be your God. When they were still in Egypt. Now that they've sinned, so Moses is beginning to negotiate. It's an amazing negotiation. I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. He says, listen, like we're buddies. You and I talk face to face. I have some things I want to share with you. I want to open my heart to you. Now if if I have found favor in your sight... Please show me your ways so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. If I have found favor in your sight, do this so that I can find favor in your sight. Do you see the, the, the logic of uh, Moses here? He is already saying, listen, if I have found favor in your sight, allow me to find favor in your sight. <laughs> Amazing negotiation. Consider too that this nation is your people. They're not the people I brought out of Egypt. They're your people. So he's appealing to God's nature. He's appealing to God's faithfulness and keeping covenant. He's appealing to God, to to God's heart. God is, is caught in this tension. Even God is caught in this tension between righteousness and judgment 
and love and compassion. And he's, Moses is standing in the middle. And he's trying to move God from righteousness and judgment. And you know, when we want to judge, we don't want to judge that place favorites. We want to judge that is justice. That is righteousness. So God is that. God isn't try, Moses isn't trying to twist God's arm and make him do something against his nature. He's simply trying to awaken that other part of God to see how God is going to come up with a solution. He knows they can't. He knows that God is righteous. God is going to judge sin. And as a matter of fact, he did. But nonetheless, in his righteousness, he wants God to be kind and merciful. He said, my, and then, sorry, I jumped ahead here. And then God replies, my presence will go with you. Now, this isn't what God, uh, what Moses is asking for. Going with someone is not going among someone. And I'm not playing word games. He told them that I'm not going to go among you. I'm not going to go within your camp. I'm going to meet you outside the camp. I'm going to do the same as I've been doing right now. Even though God had given them in previous chapters the details of how he's going to live among them. He gave them the details of a tabernacle, a tent that was going to be his dwelling place that was going to be in the middle of their camp. The, the issue here that Moses is negotiating with God is God's presence with Israel. Is God going to be walking with Israel? Ahead, behind, on the side? Or is God going to be walking within Israel? That's the issue. It's so easy to miss it. Because God says, I'll go with you and I will give you rest. I will protect you. You will have peace. Shalom. And God, Moses replies, if your presence will not go, do not bring us from here. Moses understands the difference. That's why he's still negotiating. If it was a done deal, why is he still pressing on? As a matter of fact, when you read God's mind, his mind from the very beginning was to unfold something. So when he says to him, he's still negotiating, Moses is still negotiating, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and your people unless you go with us? And here he's saying within us, among us. We shall have, in this way we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. He's trying to understand, he's, he's understood God's plan. Moses has understood that God's plan is to make a people that are a royal priesthood, that are distinctly different to be priests for all the other nations. But that can only happen if God is within them. It can't happen if God is on the outside watching. It has to happen with God dwelling among them, being part of them. Otherwise, we're no different than any other nation. You can go to Babylon and you can 
be with Nebuchadnezzar, but you're not going to be in Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar the way that you have promised you're going to be with Israel. Live according to how you have promised. The Lord says to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have asked, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, please show me your glory. Show me, manifest your fullness, your bigness. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Your goodness is running after me. We were singing it just a few minutes ago. The goodness of God is going to pass before Moses. And I will proclaim before you the name the Lord. This is the key to this whole passage. This is the key to this whole negotiation. God is unraveling and exposing who he is to Moses in a deeper way and through Moses to you and me today here in a deeper way. He's opening it up and he says to him, I will not only pass, but I will proclaim, I will declare my name, my nature, my character, my identity, which gives you identity to be different from all the other nations. My presence among you, my presence within you, my name in you and over you, the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, that name that people today in Israel will not pronounce, but they will simply say the name, Hashem. That name, which is the very nature of God, that name which in the beginning of the journey with Moses, when he asked him, he asked him these questions. He said to him, uh, Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors, when he commanded him to go back to Egypt to bring them out, Moses is talking to God from back then. He's talking to God face to face in the burning bush. If I go to them and say, the God of your ancestors has sent me. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And then God said to Moses, I am who I am. Yahweh. Jehovah. That's the name I'm giving you. And he says, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am now, in the Bible, that word is often translated, the Lord, in all capitals. And he said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, I am, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my title for all generations. I am the unchanging one, the covenant-keeping one. The one who is always faithful. But he reveals something different in this passage to Moses. He adds this to it. I will proclaim before you the name. I am the Lord. And this is the part. Despite the fact that you have violated the covenant... Despite the fact that you have no ability as humans to keep the covenant. Look what he says. I will be gracious. To whom I will be gracious. 
and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. You know, throughout the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, God revealed his name in different ways to different people. In the very beginning in creation, he reveals his name as Elohim. God. In the plural. Right? El is God. God's combined plural, one name, one person, Elohim. He's hiding in there the fact that he's a trinity. Not three gods, but one God that's plural. It's hard to understand. El Elyon, where he shows himself as the mighty one. To Hagar, in the whole history of the post-fall, the first person he appears to, not in character only, when he fought, when the Genesis 14 was the fight, when uh, Melchizedek helped Abraham. But in this case, Hagar, who was sent away, he appears to her. He appears to Hagar, the Egyptian. And she says, God has been revealed to me. I have seen God. In Genesis 17, we see him as El Shaddai. We see him as Jehovah Jireh, the provider. In all of these different expressions, he never revealed himself fully. Like they knew his name as Yahweh, the Lord, this, like you see here, Yahweh Roy. But they didn't quite know. He reveals himself to Moses as the I am. Not only, you know, there's a difference between knowing the name and experiencing the name. You know what I mean? Let me give you an example. Ara's name is Ara. We all know him as Ara. But you know what the name means. Some of you may have studied it. But unless he reveals himself to you, you won't know what character that name carries. Do you know what the name means? Do you, do you know? Yeah. It means king. Right? Yes. <laughs> it means king. Royalty. It also means beautiful. It also means young man. All of those things are in that name. Am I close? Well, tell me what you understand it to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. It also, I'm just going to say this on the mic so those at home can hear it. It also comes from the Armenian word Ararich, which means the creator, the founder, the establisher. All of that is in that name. Did you know that before he explained it? Before we talked about it? No. You know him as Ara. They knew him as Elohim. They knew him as Jehovah Jireh. They knew him as Yahweh. But they didn't know him as Yahweh until he revealed that to Moses. And now that was in Genesis, Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 33, after Moses realized that the wickedness of humanity, even a covenant saved humanity, a grace experienced humanity, a kindness and loving experienced humanity, just like you and me. Just like you and me, when we come in contact with the grace of God and we taste how sweet Jesus is, and yet we walk away and we walk right back to the vomit and we eat it. 
and we do the sinful things that we do. But he wants to establish that new name, that he is merciful, that his goodness is going to walk and parade itself among us. Your goodness chases after me, runs after me. Why do we sing that? Because that's his character that we have inherited and have revealed to us now. Because it was revealed to Moses, it's now revealed to us. Whatever has been given to the forefathers is our inheritance. So when we see this now, it's unbelievable when, when we begin to see what happens. This is how he played it out. So God promised that he's going to do this and Moses is now happy and they're going away. So Moses actually receives what God has promised. And in chapter 34, we read it this way. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name, the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. He's unveiling his character. He's opening his heart to show us, despite the fact that you cannot, I'm going to do what's right to bring you to the place that you can receive this. He doesn't tell us how yet here. He, they don't understand that he's going to come in the flesh and die. But it's been prophesied. It's been prophesied over and over again. You know, you know, you know what mercy and grace are? Merciful means I will deal with you and not give you what you deserve because of your sin. Mercy means not getting what we deserve. But then he says, and gracious. And that's another beautiful thing. Grace means getting what we don't deserve. Do you see the difference? One is not getting what we deserve judgment and the other is getting what we don't deserve love and kindness and goodness so he's both and he's revealing that and he says i am slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness listen to this keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty. I am just, I am righteous, I will judge sin, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's beautiful. For the righteous, he will bless for how many generations? For the righteous, he will bless how many generations? A thousand. For the unrighteous, he will judge to the three and four. So at any point, when you realize whether you or your parents or your grandparents or your great-grandparents have committed any unrighteousness, guess what? You can break the cycle and start a, a, a four times at least, four times better cycle for your generations. The ratio is three, four to a thousand. Which one is more faithful? Which one is more loving? Which character of God is more persistent? His righteousness, it's definitely there. He will judge the sin. He will not let it go. But that judgment will fall on his son. So if you and I wake up to the realization 
that we need his mercy. We need his grace. Step into that place and receive it. Because what he intends to do from the very beginning, what he intends to do from the very, very beginning is to bring us to that place where he walks with us and he lives with us. In Isaiah chapter 14, he prophesied that the virgin will give birth. The virgin will give birth. And you know what his name is going to be? Emmanuel. God within us. God among us. And he didn't just leave it there with the Jewish people where he would dwell in a tent in the middle. He actually poured his spirit within us. He made us tabernacles. He lives within us. He doesn't just walk beside us. Yeah, we sing the song, he walks with me and talks with me. Yeah, that's true. But he does it from inside. He is going wherever we go. He's not going to change his mind. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will send you another, the comforter, who will dwell within you. And he will live within you. And he will walk with you. That's the kind of God that we have. That's the God that has opened his arms to say, come to me. I don't know where you are in your journey. You may have had your ups and downs like the nation of Israel. You may have just built yourself a golden calf. But he stands right here with his open arms and says, come back to me. I've paid the price. I've opened the way. Come back to me. I want to live within you. Open your heart to him right now. I'm going to invite you to stand. And as you're standing, just open your heart to him. Pray this prayer with me. Father of all creation, my mind can't understand your grace. My mind can't begin to imagine your goodness. I know how I want to love my children. And in my imperfection, I fail. But in your perfection, your love is perfect for us. You're still looking to establish a family where you dwell where that family will become a priesthood and a kingdom that represents you to all the nations. You're looking to do that now through your church. And we're scattered everywhere on the planet. So Lord, awaken us to that reality. Awaken us to the purpose of our creation. Awaken us here at City River to know what you intend to do with us in this whole journey where you are king and we are kings with you. Priests, a light to the nations. And Lord, if I have drifted, and I know I do often, I come to you and I say, forgive me. You are a merciful and gracious God.
You are faithful. You are faithful. If you're honest before God right now and you ask for forgiveness, His Word tells us that He is faithful and just to forgive all unrighteousness, to cleanse us from all iniquity, to restore us, to fill us, to pour His goodness and love over us. If you've done that, come and see me, please. I want to bless you. I want to pray with you. I want to rejoice with you. If you've never done that before, if you've never come to the Father and asked for forgiveness, today's your day. He doesn't want you to leave here without entering into his arms receiving his goodness his faithfulness to keep you and carry you all the days of your life he wants to bless you today now may the peace of God may his grace his mercy his goodness follow you all your days God bless you in Jesus name Amen